Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. But Father, I want to give you thanks again in the house of the Lord that you're blessed to have us and we're blessed to have you. That may sound funny, but I just want to say thank you, Father, for the authority that we have in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. I want to thank you, Father, for the revelation of Christ in us, the very hope of your glory being manifested in the earth. I want to say that over and over again, Father, until we begin to see it and hear it and feel it and eat it. I thank you afresh for your spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ Jesus, that you would open up the eyes of our understanding so that we might see what is the hope of our calling that we might know what is the exceeding greatness of your power that is to usward who believe. In Jesus' name, Father, I give you thanks for your holy, holy word. And indeed for this great, amazing love that you've showered upon us because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So I give you thanks today, Father. And I just trust that you help me. Now, Holy Spirit, again, I know from the word of God. Jesus said, you're the true teacher. You are the teacher. You will guide us into truth. You will show us things to come. And so we release faith for you to teach us that you would speak to our spirit, that we would become a people who know how to be still, who know how to take advantage of silent moments so that we can actually incline, lean, lean, our ear towards you, that we might hear from heaven. In the name of Jesus, I ask this, and I thank you for it. Amen. That we might lean, incline your ears, incline. Everybody put your head like that. You look really silly. No, but you know, it means, and you know, you've heard me say it before, when you really want to hear something, somebody saying, how you, how you pull, how you just, you stretch yourself, whatever term you want to use. You know, honest to God, it's a funny phrase. One of my heart's desires is that truly we do become a people of the word. But I mean really, really, really do become people of the word. That somehow, some way, we might be part of that body of Christ that actually venerates, actually reveres God's Word and the sacrifice of Christ in our lives. I mean, that we would really, really take hold and understand that there is nothing more valuable in our entire life than our revelation of God in the Word. Seriously, the thing that freaks me out the most or hurts me the most is when, you know, I see people that I love and over my, you know, 32 some years now, I guess more years than that, I've been here 31 years now. But in my, whatever, 35 years of ministry is to see people whom I have fallen in love with, you know what I mean, just fall by the wayside simply because of wrong decisions. And most of those wrong decisions started with a very small decision, you know what I mean, something so simple, so so subtle that they didn't see the danger that was in it. This is why, again, the Bible speaks a lot about leaven, you know, and talks about the leaven of the Pharisees, just leaven, that little something that small something that seems to be nothing at the moment, but that leads into something worse and worse and worse until you suddenly turn around and you find yourself absolutely bound by something or bound into something and you actually find yourself 
not knowing the way out. And that's horrible. You know, I'm speaking from my personal experience. Like, I, I will never, ever forget, really, what it meant to, to be truly addicted to heroin, to actually wake up every single morning. I mean, for years, every single morning. I mean, my, the moment my eyes woke up, my body had to have heroin. And there was just no peace. There was nothing. You just struggled. You had to get to that next something that made you normal, that got you to the place where you could make it through the day. What, you know, there's, there was nothing. It was, you know, a living death. It really is a living death. But the thing is, having known that, I've seen so many people since I've been in the ministry, like I said, that have taken hold of things that weren't legally wrong. But it swallowed their lives up to the point that they literally had no life. They didn't understand what it meant to breathe. They didn't understand. They, hadn't, they, they just kept making these silly small choices that led them into a place where they found themselves so bound so long that they literally had lost something like 15 years, 20 years, in some cases 30 years of life. And that's, a, you know, my heart breathes with the desire to not see that happen to any of our people whatsoever. I really, I mean, really don't. And it's why the responsibility of this stuff called pastoring really freaks me out sometimes when the Lord awakens me to it over and over again about the responsibility of being, you know, a shepherd of their souls. To do your best to see that people with all the fun, with all the humor, with everything else, that people actually see the gravity of the day that we live in. And really understand the necessity of each and every one of you making right choices, making right decisions. Do not follow stupid things that you know to be stupid. If it feels funky, you know, the Bible says that anything that's not of faith, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And what that speaks to is if you can't do, go, see, watch, read, whatever, something, if there's a question in your spirit and you go ahead, you've already violated your spirit. And the more you violate your spirit, the more you begin to harden. Well, what that is, is hardening of the heart. You begin to put that hardening to work in your spirit, man, to the point where you keep saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Till you get to the point that for you, it's okay. I no longer feel any conviction about doing what I'm doing. I don't want that to happen, you know, to any of us. I do want us to be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. I want us to have enough love between us real love, the real stuff, that we're able to look at each other right in the face and say, you are blowing it. I said, you're blowing it right now. You're doing something that's really dangerous. I don't care how simple it looks right now. It's really dangerous because of the attitude that flows with it that can keep you from the blessings of heaven and can keep you from an abundant life. Jesus did come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. That's all. I was teaching, well, we're going to go back to this. Go back, to, if you want to, to 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. What I started on, remember, and like I said, I've got like five sessions I want to do on this. So these, these five sins that Paul said that he used, he spoke about that happened to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. These five things that kept them from entering into the promises of God. And even though we're in a new covenant, we're on this grace side of Calvary. The New Testament still says that these things will keep you. These are the five major things that will keep God's people 
that will keep you from actually inheriting the promises. The issue is not whether or not God has promised. God has done his part. He has released his will. He's released his promise. And he's done it through the grace that was ushered into the earth because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'll quote this statement again over and over again. But the issue is that whatever grace is made available, faith must obtain. You've got to reach out and take what grace is made available. So the issue is not whether or not it's available. The issue is whether will, will we do what it takes to inherit that promise, but will we also guard our hearts above all that we guard, knowing that out of our hearts flows the issues of life. Whatever's in your heart and abundance, it flows, it produces, it issues forth. The life of something, the life of something dark can issue forth if it's in your heart. So again, we are called to guard our hearts above anything else that you guard. You might have a brand new Aston Martin. I'm thinking about buying one tomorrow. Hallelujah. Brand new Aston Martin. Now, I got to tell you, if you had a brand new Aston Martin, I doubt if you'd park it on the street in Brixton or in Camberwell or in Lambeth where I live. You know what I mean? I'm nowhere. Don't, don't, don't anybody get funky with me. But seriously, you know what I mean? I mean, if you put out that kind of money for a new Aston Martin, possibly you would want to protect it. You know, I know as much as I love, you know, people in this church, I wouldn't let none of you drive it. I wouldn't even let you drive it, baby. No. No. You can drive the Bentley. Because if I got that much money, Mama has to have a Bentley first, you know what I mean? Hallelujah. She wants a drophead Bentley with cream interior and that dark midnight blue stuff. Oh, nice. Hush. We bind that in Jesus' name. Five things. I'm going to read them from the King James in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because remember when I started all this, we, I read verse 13 first, like I said, because it's something I've been teaching on when I was in the States. The verse that we all know that says, For no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted above your ability to, es to escape it or above your ability to bear it but will always, with the temptation, make sure that there is a way to escape, right? Right? But again, in context, that's what made me go again and start reading from verse 1 to chapter 10. In context, he's speaking of these five different sins that disallowed Israel from going into the promises of God. So I'm going to read them from the King James, starting at verse 6. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now, these things were our examples. He's talking New Covenant. This is Paul. The guy who was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the heaven, out the heaven, out, you know, in the spirit of this, in the flesh, in the body, out of the body, he said he knew not. But he said, now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust, number one, after evil things as they also lusted, neither be idolaters, number two, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, that's number three, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, tempting Christ, that's number four. As some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Number five, neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. That's heavy. Now all these things happened unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. 
Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Amen? Amen? So he's talking New Testament, grace, the promises of God. But he said these five issues, just like they stopped Israel, well, in this covenant, you're not going to go to hell per se. Although some could. (laughs) But it says that it will keep you from actually inheriting the promises. So the week before last when I spoke first, I spoke on the first one about lust, about this craving for other things than what you needed to have and what have you. But now we're going to talk about idolatry. Now, when you talk about idolatry in Scripture, actually in the stuff I read during this last week, and I looked at and studied afresh again, the Bible actually, what I found out and what I read from many, many people, the Bible speaks more about idolatry than any other topic. When you add the Old Covenant and New Covenant together, it's the most, it's the greatest issue in Christianity or in the life of Israel is the problem with idolatry. And again, if we go back to Exodus, like he just, like Paul was quoting there, you know, they waited, remember, Moses went up on the mount with, to see God, to go up there before, you know, when God was going to give him the Ten Commandments. And they're down there, and they grew weary, and they grew weary, and they're growing more and more weary because they didn't see anything happening. And even there, you got to catch that. When you, you, they grew weary because they didn't see anything happening. And the first thing they said is, you know, we don't know if this God's God or not anymore. Let's make a God. Remember? And so they said, let's take all the gold, all the jewels, everything we have, and they got Aaron. They talked Aaron into doing it, but Aaron wasn't too sharp, to say the least. He made some big-time mistakes. Threw it all into the thing. I love the way they say it. It's like an, it's Aaron, the way Aaron said it. Like, what an excuse. He says, Moses, when Moses comes down, he, afterwards he says, I don't know what happened. It's just they gave us all this gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out from the fire came this calf. You know, a calf just formed, and there it was. But no, you know, he formed it, they made it, and they bowed down and began. They peep. The thing is, there's something in human nature that wants to worship something. Okay? And see, everybody you know that's not in church worships something. Did you hear me? They worship something because it's something that's unique to the nature of mankind. We want to have something that's outstanding in our life as far as a supernatural interest that we want to hold fast to. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. I mean, when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment was, you shall have no other gods but me, right? Even the second about, and the second one was about idols. But I want you to turn to Romans 1. I'm going to do my best to go quick. I got too many, two million things here I could speak to. Let me just quote another one. While you turn to Romans 1, let me quote 1 John 5.21. 1 John 5.21, simply, he ends the book of 1 John, the Apostle John, by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. In other words, this is New Testament. This is today. Keep yourself from idols. So my job right now is to say and to look at all of you in the face and say, keep yourself from idols. And you would say, I don't have any giant statue in my bedroom. (laughs) Some of you may. But again, we're talking about many different things, and that's what we're going to look at today. So in Romans 1, you know, it's incredibly powerful. I'm going to have to read it. I'm going to start in verse um, 16, where Paul is speaking about his love of the gospel. He says in verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Christ, 
For it is God's power working unto salvation for deliverance from eternal death to everyone who believes with the personal trust and a confident surrender and firm reliance to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness which God ascribes is revealed, both springing from faith and leading to faith, disclosed through the way of faith that arouses to more faith. As it is written, the man who through faith is just and upright shall live and shall live by that faith. For God's holy wrath and indignation are revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, I want to insert right here that, remember, if, I don't know if I think what years ago, I know I must have actually taught the grace message, but like when we taught on righteousness, like I said, when you really start hitting from Romans 3 onwards and you really hit Romans 6, 7, and 8, remember this is one letter, and Paul's working up to something. He's working up all the way to Romans 8, 1, basically where it says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But now he's referring here, he's all the way back at the beginning of this letter, and he's talking about what happened in the old. But I want you to hear it, didn't he? He said, for God's holy wrath and indignation are revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their wickedness they repress and hinder the truth. They repress and hinder the truth and make it inoperative. Even last night when I read this afresh, I turned my head to the side and I said, Father, help me be better at repressing, or rather not repressing. I'm saying it backwards. I said, Father, help me to welcome the truth in my spirit every time my spirit tries to go a contrary way. I don't want I don't want to repress the truth. I don't want to hinder the truth that I know that is in me by virtue of your Holy Spirit. It basically, you know, it means, you know, God help me be truly led of your spirit, because he'll only lead me into life. Verse nineteen for that which is known about God and evident to them. Now he's talking about all the people to whom his wrath has been revealed. I want to say that again. He's talking about all, all the people, Old Testament in particular, to whom his wrath came upon. He said, for that which is known about God is evident to them and made plain in their inner consciousness because God himself has shown it to them. Now why these verses are really important in our theology, as it were, is because we stand by the truth that God has never, ever, no man, no woman has ever busted hell wide open who didn't at some point in their life have God Almighty revealed to them. Did you hear that? People, the argument all over the earth has always been, but how it's not fair. Why would somebody go to hell if they've never had the chance to hear the gospel? There's no flesh and blood human being that's ever lived on planet Earth that God didn't reveal himself to. Otherwise, he would be an unjust God, and we would have no reason to trust him. But watch this, because he's talking about a time there, but I want to get us to where it is today. 
For that which is known about God is evident to them and made plain in their inner consciousness because God himself has shown it to them. Verse 20, forever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature and attributes, that is his eternal power and divinity, have been made intelligible. You, I hope, I, you have to make a choice to believe this. They have been made intelligible and clearly discernible. How? Through the things that have been made. His handiwork so that men are without excuse altogether, without any defense or justification. Now again, that was tough for me when I was a young Christian. But like I said, every, at every point in your life, you will be challenged with the, re, with the opportunity to either to believe or to not believe. And this is why preaching the goodness, the gospel, the kindness of God is so, is so crucial. Just like the songs we sang and what have you. Until you have a revelation of God's love for you, you will find it very difficult to say no to sin. You have to understand the love of God. You have to know that even when you screw up, he's still there. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Again, like I said, the beauty of his holiness, the revelation of how beautiful he is, breaks the power of attraction to any other thing that would have momentary beauty to you. Okay? Okay? Somebody say, okay. Just make me feel better. So there's nobody on planet Earth that's ever been without, a, that ever has an excuse or, or, or trying to be self-justified about it because God's revealed himself. And it says, even to the things that he's made. Now, you know, like I said, I grew up in the tall mountains, the big redwoods and stuff. And yes, it is true. You know, you can't, to me, it's one of the most holy things I ever remembered before I even knew Jesus had anything to do with it. There's something about sitting in a little three-foot-wide creek where you're under the shoulder of all these big pines and redwood and the smell is everywhere and having little young fawns, little baby deer come up and, and stand three feet from you in the stream and just look up at you and you're just sitting there and you're, you're in this moment that's so pristine and, and so incredible that you're just going, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever, ever experienced. And you don't realize it at the time, but that's, even at that, God's revealing something so beautiful that you don't know. You can't, poetry doesn't do that stuff justice. When, you've li- when you live in a moment, I would hope that everybody, I know everybody in here has experienced some moment of absolute beauty and absolute amazement on the clean, good, godly side of things. In other words, where there was no evil attached to it. Something. Julie is, you know, her love is the beach. She'll sit there and just stare. And many people, you know, are like, are, will join in. And you just sit and stare and listen to the wave after wave after wave and wonder at the glory of God that's made all these oceans, divided all the earth to all this. The point is, uh, get past it, God's revealed himself. See, we don't, we think that means that Jesus Christ himself appears to everybody in their bedroom and says, hello, I'm Jesus. I just want you to know I'm Jesus and I'm real. No, God's a spirit and he deals with their spirit and the spirit of every human being that's ever lived has had God revealed to him. Okay, but let me just keep reading. Let me finish. Let me start reading halfway through verse 20 before we get into verse 21. His eternal power and divinity have been made intelligible and clearly discernible in and through the things that have been made, his handiwork. So men are without excuse altogether, without any defense or justification. Verse 21. This is the issue. Because 
because relates all the way back to the verse that says, now God's holy wrath came upon these people. This, now what he's about to do is describe the people whom his wrath came upon. Because when they knew and recognized him as God, did you catch that? When something in their spirit said, there's a higher power. There's got to be a creator. Uh, there has to be. There's no way that this can have happened by accident. There's just no way. Because when they knew and recognized him as God, they did not honor and glorify him as God or give him thanks, but instead they became futile and godless in their thinking with vain imaginations, foolish reasonings, stupid speculations, and their senseless minds were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Professing to be smart, they made simpletons of themselves. And by them, the glory and the majesty and the excellence of the immortal God were exchanged for and represented by images resembling mortal man, birds, and beasts, and reptiles. Again, you've got to read all through Isaiah, all through Deuteronomy, all through Exodus, you find this, but it makes you laugh when you think, I mean, God says it about as clear as he can. I don't remember if it's Isaiah 48 or where it is, because it's said in several places, but he says, a man takes a piece of wood, he carves an image out of a piece of wood, he takes some of the wood, he puts it in the fire to cook his food, and then he takes the rest of the wood and he bows before it and calls it a God. And God says, how stupid is that? I mean, really, you make something with your own hand. You create something through your own talent. And you begin to bow down to the thing that you're able to make yourself happen. Maybe I should say it this way. You begin to bow down to something you can make happen. And you begin to allow that to dictate to you. You begin to allow that to become the guiding force in your life. Again, that's really important to me because of like our musician stuff. I love them all. I mean, you know, Lucy, all of the, you know, when I listen to David play and this stuff, because the giftings that they have. But this is why, you know, we harp on it. But every single person in this room is a gifting. But I just never, ever, ever, ever want Lucy or David, or Michael, or Mike Brown, or any of the rest of them. I don't ever, ever, ever want them to really get to the place where they self-determine their real self-value based upon some gift, some talent that God has given them. I don't want somebody's ability to play guitar become their identity. I don't want people, you know, Mike Brown, the guitar player. That's cool. But how about Mike Brown, the son of God? How about Mike Brown, the guy that loves God? And see, all of us have to say this. Who, what are we really known for? Are we known for our willingness to help? Are we known for our willingness to be there, to be a friend? Are, you know, or are we known for having, or having, are we known for always having to have our own will, our own way? And we all know somebody that, bless God, they just have to have their way. If nobody else is that important, I am the most important person in this room. And bless God, I'm going to show you just how important I am. But see, that's idolatry. And as I said once before, idols are made, the Bible teaches that idols are made to be thrown to the ground and broken. 
so this is a real deal. Idolatry is a huge issue. And it's not like I said today, you know, Helen Banks probably has in her room a giant stuffed pelican. Who knows? And she may, do you bow down to that pelican all the time? Oh, great pelican. Oh, great pelican God. No, of course you do. I hope, no, I hope you don't do that. You don't do that. You don't have a Zumba God, do you, or anything? Oh, great God, Zumba, Zumba. Oh, I worship you, Zumba. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. There's stuff in our lives, but all through Isaiah, I mean, to really hear about that, they take a piece of wood, with part of it, they warm their house, with another part of it, they cook their food, and with another part of it, they bow down to the same thing that they cook the food with, and they make an idol out of it. And God always says, has that ever spoken to you? No. Your wood will never talk back to you. Your, your idol will never speak back to you. Paul goes on, but he said this. He said, verse 22 again, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and professing to be smart, they made simpletons of themselves, and by them the glory and the majesty and the excellence of the immortal God were exchanged for and represented by images resembling mortal man and birds and beasts and reptiles. Verse 24 is a tough scripture. Therefore, God gave them up. In other words, if that's what you really want, you can have it. But I'll tell you, just like Israel praying for a king when it wasn't God's will for them to have an earthly king, God wanted to be their king. This is one of those frightening things. This, is, this really speaks to what we'll get to when you talk about tempting God. You can get something through the knowledge of how to pray that's not God's will for you to have. You can press so hard and press so strong that you can get something that will bury you instead of make you. And this is why, again, it's knowing God. It's staying with Him. It's staying in this crucible of prayer. It's learning how to have a prayer life. It's learning how to linger with Him. It's learning how to keep your spirit tender. Tender. Really, really tender. I mean, the whole issue of of the earth right now, everything that hell brings against us is to desensitize you. You understand what I mean? To de Where you're not as sensitive as you used to be to swearing, to cussing. Now it's easy for you. You can effing blind like anybody else. I would say that's a danger sign. I would say that's something wrong in your character, to say the least. You begin to go places it's okay for me to go to the clubs once in a while because, you know, it's, I just wanted to see some old friends you're being desensitized. You're losing that sensitivity. And by that, in losing that, you begin to forfeit something better for something that's just here for the moment. God always has something better for every single one of you. I said he's got something better for every single one of you. But we're called, and you can't blame your life on anybody else. I understand there's a lot of people that have gone through hell. They're in marriages that are tough all kinds of different situations, but I'm telling you, when it's all said and done, God is individually desirous of being involved with you and in your life. And he will do something. This is why, again, it's my life is not based upon Julie's revelation of Christ. My life, God, I'm not going to be judged by how Julie treats me. Verse 24. But do hear this. This, this is something that, again, you can... It, is a whole other topic that can be taught on. God gave them up. If people, if you, if you just, if you are determined to be a certain way, let me tell you, God will deal with you, and He will deal with you, and He will deal with you. But there can come a day 
when he just lifts his grace and says, if that's what you want, have it. Because you, again, you keep hardening your heart. You become, like Paul said, past feeling. Think about the word, past feeling. You no longer feel in that area. It's okay. Young Christians that are dating, little bit of, you know, a little bit of lovey-dovey here. Listen, I'm not some prude, but I got to, you know, but what do we say? We got to tell you, you got to what? You have to know. Young men have to be aware of women who don't know God. Young women better be aware of men. And I don't care if they say they know God or not. Let's face it. The moment somebody begins to dishonor your body. Do I have to get explicit? The moment some guy begins to touch you, even, I don't care if it's your shoulder. There's a difference between somebody touching your shoulder and somebody going. I knew Ayanna would laugh. You know, when they come up to you, you know, hi, Ayanna. All he did is touch my shoulder. Hey, there's touch and there's touch. When it's God, there's healing in touch. When it's the devil, listen, that's the difference between flattery and praise. Flattery is looking to get something. And a lot of guys know how to flatter women. Praise is simply extolling the virtue that you're aware of and you recognize. So women have to be really guarded about flattery. Because there's a lot of guys like us. You've heard me say years ago when I talk about the love one stuff. Listen, there's a lot of ugly, ugly dudes that have got good looking women. Yes, I know you're looking at one. <laughs> because you know, no, 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 but I'm saying because they know how to talk. Because a woman's emotional needs. If a guy learns how to minister to a woman's emotions, she'll just hang in there. Oh, talk to me some more. That's how Tommy got Wang, right? just happens. You know, I, I mean, I'm trying to make it funny, but I want it to be real. I, I want you to be, I don't, you've got to watch. You've got, it's only by staying in this book, in particular in the New Testament. And it's only by being a man or a woman of prayer or a young lady or a young man of prayer. You know, listen, it's the world that tells you that you're not complete unless you don't have sex. It's the world that tells you that. It's not God. You can be 100%, trust me, 100% complete in God without messing around. You really, really can. But you must not. But again, that's what television does. That's what billboards, you know, you know. I mean, next week, is the next time I speak is when we're going to talk about and fornication, the third one. But the point is just this, again, hell's job is to desensitize us to truth, to where, eh, it's no big deal anymore. But what God's Word says, he says here in verse 24, again, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their own hearts to sexual impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, abandoning them to the degrading power of sin. I might have to go back here next time I speak. But verse 25 is the verse I wanted to get to because this, this is incredible. They exchanged... The truth, the truth. In other words, at some point they recognize the truth. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And here's the idolatry issue. And they did what? They worshipped 
and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So be it. They begin to worship something created. And I got to tell you, that's really easy to do. I always remember this pastor's daughter when we lived out in, uh, in High Wycombe, while we lived in uh, Marlow, and uh, actually Lane Inn, this little village Lane Inn out there. And this, there was a church out, well, the church is still there. And the upstairs was our first office, our office for liberty. Uh, well, whoever we were then, I don't pray for the nation to think. But our, our, one of our first offices, they had this upstairs area. They didn't have enough people in the congregation, so that was our office up there where our son Jamie, as a young kid, would be duplicating all our cassette tapes because I was preaching. You know, Julie and I preached all over the UK and Europe and places. And anyhow, I've told this story before, but I'll, I'll never forget, you know, the pastor, John's daughter, came walking in one day, and she and two girlfriends, and she said, oh, and she was just laughing and talking with us, and she said, I just wish I, just wish I could quit. I wish I could quit smoking. I just can't stop smoking, and I, I don't want to smoke. And God just spoke to me real quick, and I said, well, do you have a cigarette with you right now? And she said, yeah, and her girlfriends were saying, yeah, she's, you know, blah, blah, blah. Pastor's daughter, she was ashamed, just like you mentioned, shame. That's a very powerful thing. I wish I could, I'll preach on it sometime. I mean, what, that aspect of what you said, uh, we begin to put things in position. But anyhow, I said, do you have a cigarette? And she said, yeah. I said, well, get one out. So she got one out, and it was a wooden floor. And I said, I want you to do, get, you know, and had whatever kind of cigarette. But I said, see if you can make it stand up on the floor. And she said, what? I said, see if you can make it stand up. Just get down on your knees, see if you can make that, that cigarette stand up. And she kind of laughed. Her girlfriend's laughing. Yeah. You know, like girls are, you know, girls. <laughs> right, Fermi? Anyhow, she gets funny. She gets this cigarette and is standing straight up. And I said, and I, said, I don't know, I just hadn't thought about it. I wasn't trying to be trippy. But I said, okay, now get down on your knees in front of it. She said, no, I don't like I said, get down on your knees in front of it. So she gets down on her knees and the cigarette standing in front of her, just like this, if you can picture it. And I said, okay, now I want you to bow down. And she, she's laughing. Her girlfriends are cracking up. I said, now bow down, put your hand, both hands on either side of the cigarette. And they're cracking up and she's doing it and she's laughing. I said, now say this with me. Oh, great piece of weed. <laughs> you know, and she goes, no. And I said, say it. And she's, oh, great piece of weed. I worship you. I worship you. You have control of my life. You have control. I did. You know, whatever. I went through this whole thing and she was cracking. But the picture, if you can see the picture, she was bowing down. I said, do you really, really understand what that is? I said, it's idolatry. You're allowing something this big that's crumpled up tobacco that has a piece of paper wrapped around it, that is dictating to your life? You're telling me that's more powerful than Christ in you? Really? And see, this is what's important about this, is this is why you sometimes have to call a spade a spade, you know, like they say. You have to name something. You, many of people who suffer through different aspects of idolatry, they don't get free because they don't rename it. In other words, they don't name it idolatry. Uh, another example is that I, I used to make a joke of, you know, when I, was, I, when I was over here many years ago, my first year and a half here, one of our students, because I, I was a principal at Bible school, she was from the south of France. She was from just, up, just outside of Cannes. And she was getting married to this guy from Scotland, and they wanted to get married in Cannes. And they asked me, they flew me over there for three or four days, you know, to, to do the service in Cannes. I, was, I always remember, for some reason, November 17th. I always remember because of my very first time. You know, I was American. I was just 
come over here. I was a little from a hick town, basically. And I, all of a sudden, I'm on the French Riviera on November 17th. There was sunny. It was beautiful. There wasn't anybody on the beach hardly at all because it was November. And I was just sitting there going, man, this is incredible. You know, this, I was in prison a couple of years ago, and now I'm in the French Riviera. This rocks. Better down. And uh, yeah, they took me to this little French patisserie. Remember? It took me to this little French patisserie just off this little, on the way to Italy. It just from, I'm in, on the way to Monte Carlo right there in the south of France. It just, you know, it doesn't take that long to get to Monte Carlo, and then you get to Italy. And as they said they wanted me to, to experience a real French almond croissant. I got to say, there's almond croissants in England. But there's almond croissants in France. They took me to this little place, and it was one of these things where I took one bite. I'm almost salivating now. <laughs> took one bite of this warm, perfect, perfect pastry thingy. Mm. And it was just the end of the conversation because it was that good. Now, I know you say, what the heck? Are you that bound? Well, I didn't think I was, but I was. The point is this. So every, every day, just the four days, we'd have to drive by this one little off-ramp on this little two-lane road that would take you to this little old French bakery right here by this just one little simple little shop, you know, about five little places in this bakery. And every single time I drove past that, remember, like I said, I'd, I'd feel this arm going, And it was pulling. Anyway, I know none of that's ever happened to you. But what I'm going to say is, I had to recognize that that possibly wasn't God. But what I'm doing with all that is, I remember what God taught me from that was because we started joking. I kind of joking with my friend with Eddie back in those days, and we're joking about how you know how somebody goes to let's say you go to somebody's house and they have I don't know what uh, name some incredible dessert that you love. Uh, in America, I'd say coconut cream pie. You don't have that over here. Coconut cream pie. You walk in this place and you see it and you go, man. And what? If, and how many of you have something in your life to say, man, I love that. I got a weakness for that. You know what I mean? I mean, I really got a weakness in that area. Boy, I like that. Well, not a whole pot of fresh steaming almond croissants. I got a weakness in that area. You know what I mean? Oh, my God. You know, donuts, real American donuts. <laughs> and God one day stopped me and he said, you know, he said, if you can call it a weakness, then everybody will laugh. But he said, I want you to start calling it what it is. And in this case, I said, what? And he said, call it a stronghold. I said, pardon me? And he says, the next time somebody offers you, say this. Boy, I've really got a stronghold in that area. <laughs> and the funny, yeah, it was funny. But see, the thing is, the moment I called that a stronghold instead of a weakness, something shifted in my thinking. And this one, I'm saying, you got to. If something's idolatry, it's idolatrous, and you need to. You need to keep checking your spirit. Is this stuff a weakness? Is this some area you just always find yourself so easily going to? It may just be a stronghold, and that basically translates into idolatry. I know you all love to hear that, but it's the truth anyhow. They began to serve the creature, something created, more than the creator. I j- turn to James four real quick. I think I quoted this the last time I spoke, but I think it's important. Again, it's another frightening scripture. But now remember, what are we talking about? We're talking about different issues that the Apostle Paul said are still 
here today that will keep us from the promises. And hopefully everybody in here wants to really inherit these promises because God has promised, right? The issue isn't whether or not God has promised you. The issue is that there are five major areas that keep us that keep us from actually entering into the promises. Let me start in verse 1, James 4, verse 1. What leads to strife, discord, and feuds? How do conflicts, quarrels, fighting originate among you? Do they not arise from your sensual desires that are ever warring in your bodily members? Now, don't instantly think sex, would you? Sensual, just your senses being moved towards an area. Uh, who was it? Who were we talking Oh, I know who we were talking with last week. We, had, we were talking with somebody that came to our house yesterday. And we were talking about how when they're on the road, how interesting it is when they come home from being on the road. On the road, they said, because they're in show business. And they're talking about how because on the road, everybody's all appreciating them. And they're always hearing so much, man, how good you are. Or, wow, how much I appreciate you. And blah, 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 blah. And they said, but when I come home, I don't have that with my spouse. And it's not that they don't love me, but I got so used. Do you hear me? I can get so used to people patting me on the back. Man, you're the greatest. You know what I mean? Mike, I mean, you're the top dog. Mike, you rock. You rock. I mean, Mike, you rock. He goes to these gigs. He comes back. Everybody's going, man, I'd love, man, what he did last night. And he comes home to this lovely lady named Claudette. And Claudette says, hey, Mike, you home? Would you take the rubbish out? And he's, and he's going, uh, yeah, I just came out of a place where everybody's telling me how hot I am to a woman that supposedly is my wife that I love forever. She says, would you please take the rubbish out? But, but you gotta, do you catch what I'm trying to say? See, it, it, it's, boy, you've got to stay sensitive to the truth. So anyhow, sensual. Verse 2, you are jealous and you covet what others have. And your desires go unfulfilled. So you become murderers. Man, I could teach on that for a while. To hate is to murder, as far as your hearts are concerned. Nobody in here hates anybody, right? I'm going to turn my radio on right now. I want to see who I, when I feel the spirit linger in a place. You are jealous and you covet what others have and your desires go unfulfilled. So you become murderers. To hate is to murder as far as your hearts are concerned. You burn with envy and anger and you're not able to obtain the gratification, the contentment and the happiness that you seek. So you fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3. Or you do ask God for them and yet fail to receive because you ask with wrong purpose and evil, selfish motives. Your intention is when you get what you desire to spend it in sensual pleasures. In other words, I want to be gratified. It's all about me. You are like, verse 4, unfaithful wives. Now think about James speaking to the people of the church here. You are like, Unfaithful wives having illicit love affairs with the world. Is anybody here having a love affair with the world? And the truth is, there will be several people here. Seriously. 
that's no condemnation, it's just truth, that have a love affair going on with the world. There's something about the world or what the world has that actually has a place on your priority list much higher than God. Now, like I say, if the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't fit, don't sweat it. But I'm saying every one of us, myself included, can find myself suddenly giving more attention or I become more excited about going to a, seeing a rugby game. Is there anything wrong with a rugby match? No. But I can, if, if I continuously, see God's, like in one thing I'm going to read here, I read a lot of articles. God's not against entertainment. Amen. God's not against any of that at all. I mean, Paul speaks about Olympics and the games. I mean, these people watched games. They watched athletic events. They watched stuff. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But the issue is, does it begin to dictate to your life? Does it begin to subtly but surely take a place in your list of priorities that speaks louder to you than your desire to be with God? And this is why I pray so much for all of you, again, to have this actual visitation, a personal visitation of the Holy Ghost. Because, you know, you need to know that he's real. This isn't just a book we're studying. It's a person we're following. And you need to see the person. And we can't see him with our eyes right now, our flesh and blood eyes. But the more you meditate on the Word of God, the more God reveals himself to you. And the more you become sensitive to him whenever you're about your daily work. Whatever you do, you have a God consciousness I said you have a God consciousness, whatever you're doing. It's the first thing. It's the first thing. You are like unfaithful wives having illicit love affairs of the world and breaking your marriage vow to God. And this second half of this verse, man, is just wow. Do you not know that being the world's friend is being God's enemy? Now, the word friend, that's when I teach on blood covenant. It doesn't mean acquaintance. Friend means you've come into league with them. In other words, there's something that has to be part of my life. In other words, without this, if I don't have a motorcycle, I don't have life. Or it might be, you know, young guys, a car. You know, if I don't have this, even your wife, your spouse, if Julie Anderson becomes more important to me than God, there'll be friction in our marriage. There really will. She can become an idol. And I don't want this broken. <laughs> I want God first. My wife, fortunately, I, I am supernaturally blessed. Honestly, we joke a lot, but, uh, you know, if it wasn't, I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for Julie. Just simply because of her love for God. Whatever else, you know, Ju does Julie have faults? Yeah. One or two. So Julie, you know, is Julie perfect before God? Not in her flesh, but she is in the spirit. But the point is, she is she has proven herself, her faithfulness. This is what God does. God wants to show himself faithful to you. But you've got to give him a chance. And the way you allow God to show himself faithful is to take your hands off of it. I said to take your hands off something. There's some things you need to quit praying about. And you need to just say thank you and let him go to work. Do you not know that being the world's friend is being God's enemy? So whoever chooses to be a friend of the world 
takes his stand as an enemy of God. That's an incredibly powerful honking scripture. Just real quick, I'm going to finish with 1 Kings 11. If there's anything in the Bible that blows my mind, it's the story of Solomon. And when you really see this dude, you know, uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of it because there's too much to speak to. Here's Solomon. The Bible says next to Jesus Christ, right? The wisest man. Everybody say wisest man. The wisest man that ever walked planet Earth. God visited him twice. Twice. God, do you hear me? It says he was visited by God twice. He had two personal visitations of God. The wisest man on the earth. I mean, when you go back, I mean, you know, everybody in the planet Earth, remember when you actually read it again, like you read in verse 10, it cracks, or in chapter 10, rather. Whoops, I'm in 2 Kings, excuse me, sorry. Let me get back to 1 Kings. Sorry. In 1 Kings 10, when you think about the people of the world, everybody, it says everybody in the world came to hear his wisdom, right? Um, but I, for some reason, yesterday I was reading and I read 1 Kings uh, 10, verse 14. It says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one particular year was 666 talents of gold. It goes on to say, that was besides what the traders brought and the traffic and the merchants from all the tributary kings, governors of the land of air. So I thought, I wanted to look up afresh because I didn't remember. And I said, what's a talent? How much does a talent weigh? And you look it up, it says 75 pounds. 666 talents becomes just under 50,000 pounds of, of pure gold. 50,000 pounds of pure gold came to him in one year. To the point, remember that it says, in his day, silver was as nothing. Everything was gold. He had this huge, it goes on to say there in chapter 10, huge, gigantic throne that had 12 lions, all made out of pure gold. 12 lions, life-size lions, two under the pillar of each chair where his arms went. And these other lions in front of him, all made of pure gold. His throne was solid ivory that was overlaid in pure gold. I mean, you know, this dude's got all this wisdom because that's what he asked for, right? And we all think about that. Uh, I could read it all. And he goes through all chapter 10 of 1 Kings, verse 23. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom and skill. In verse 24, and all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. Now, this freaks me out because think about it. You have more wisdom than anybody on the earth where people from around the whole flipping planet come to hear you because of the for real wisdom, the plans, the stuff that people succeeded in because they came to hear Solomon. <laughs> but verse 1 of chapter 11, and let's forget about the fact that it says, just women, it says, but King Solomon defiantly loved many foreign women, the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, Verse 2, they were of the very nations of whom the Lord said to the Israelites, you shall not mingle with them. And maybe there's somebody in here that needs to quit mingling with some stuff. You shall not mingle with them, neither shall, you, neither shall they mingle with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. But this last part of verse 2, it says, yet Solomon clung to these in love. 
Every one of us have things in our life, if we're not careful, that we have such a passion for that just quite frankly, I'm more interested in this than I am in God. Now, that happens to all of us, and it happens to me. But what I'm saying is, why we have to teach on this is because we have to be aware so that we can keep ourselves reminded, Father, forgive me. That's all I'm saying. Just say, forgive me for allowing this, for allowing my love. And that doesn't mean like, oh, I love it. just might mean to you you're determined to see this happen or you're determined for somebody to think this about you, whatever. When you cling to something that strong, when you begin to, to lift something up into a position that only belongs to God, it's idolatry. And it goes on to say this. It says, and you know, verse 3, we make jokes of it. He had 700 wives. I mean, honest to God. Forget it. Trust me. It's tough enough handling one. When Solomon was, I mean, he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, or somebody said 300 porcupines. And his wives did what? It just means all these alliances that he gave, I give some love here, 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 until all of these things weakened him to the point it says it turned his heart from God. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect or complete and whole with the Lord as God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon, and again, you guys study this for yourself. I studied it way back in Ramah. I studied some of it yesterday again, these different gods, how they were worshipped. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, or Aster, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, or Chemosh is another name, the abominable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil on the side of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord, as David his father did. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abominable idol of Joab, on the hill opposite Israel, Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abominable idol of the Amorites. Verse 8, And he did so for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed other gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Well, to finish this, let me just say, you know, again, think about what we're talking about. The wisest man that ever walked on the planet Earth. God appeared to him twice. I mean wisdom. I mean, you know, somebody that you would have respected, like a Nelson Mandela, somebody, you know, whoever. I don't know who you can think of in our modern time that was somebody that you would have just thought, my God, the way this man lived. You know what I mean? The integrity of this man, how he lived. I mean, when you think about Mandela... 27 years, right? 27 years in that prison. He walks in and he says, all I want to do is forgive. And all I want anybody who ever follows me to do is forgive so we can go forward. So that's outstanding. I mean, that really is outstanding. But here it is. He, the wisest man who ever lived, he starts, it says, going in with his wives to do this. And again, remember Chemosh was this tall, about 40-foot brass thingy brass thing with the head of a bull with the hands were out like this at a little angle. When you look at pictures of it, their hands, both hands were out at an angle, has a hollow belly. They build this raging fire in their belly, in the belly, remember, and this child sacrifice. And pe- people used to literally sell their children, the firstborn, uh, to be sacrificed. And I mean, this was part and parcel of what, what they did. They, they just did it. 
and people that were richer would go to poor people and buy their children, which people would happily do because of the money. And if somebody who sold their child, if a mother, it says you can read, if a mother who sold their child, when that baby was put on those molten red hands and it began to scream and yell as it was being burnt to death, if they shed one tear, they took the money away from them that they'd given them to buy the baby. Stuff, it's really weird. But I mean, horrible stuff. And their hands are sloped because as they burnt to death there, then slowly as their body charred and got, it says, forgive me, but as their body charred and got like more crisp, they would roll off the hands in this big pit of fire. Solomon went into this. Idolatry. I'm just saying, let's really watch ourselves. Let's keep ourselves innocent. Let's, you know, God help us. May we be always sensitized to him and to recognize, let's keep, let's ask. Well, first of all, let me just say this. Ask yourself questions. Is there something in my life? Let me, let me read one final verse here. I got in my notes. It's 1 Corinthians 5.11. Paul said, but actually, I've written to you not to associate with any so-called Christian brother if he's sexually immoral or greedy or is an idolater. And this just this phrase, devoted to anything that takes the place of God. If somebody is devoted to anything that takes the place of God, if we're devoted to something that's actually taking the place of God, it says that the rest of us are not to have fellowship with those people because sin is contagious. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks today for the truth that we find in your word. We thank you, Father, and we're going to respect and give reverence to the warning that's in Scripture. We know that you've made incredible promises to us. And we know that every promise has been answered yes in Christ Jesus. And yet, Father, the same apostle who writes this, writes and says we have to watch out for these five areas. They're examples unto us today that these five areas can keep us from inheriting your promises. So, as for me and my house, Father, we just want to say please open our eyes if anything in our life has become idolatrous. Can you say that with me? Father, pray this with me. Father, show me if there's any area of my life that is idolatrous. And Father, if I already know, I mean I really know about an area in my life that carries a price much higher than you, then grant me the courage to bring it down, to set it aside so that I might worship you and that I might revere you over anything else in my life. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, I repent right now, today, I repent of idolatry in my life. I want it out of the way, out of the way. I will give you first place and you alone. In Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Amen. All right. Praise the Lord. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 